as we come to God's Word, I stand amazed at the preparation that's happened this week because it was really on Tom's heart to give that testimony this week. And what is the passage about? The church's witness in the world. I stand amazed by that because God arranges these things. And so as we come to this next passage in Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, and we're reading the first 14 verses together, let's see what God has to say to us. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 to 14. Then I was given, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and the enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, The third woe is soon to come. Now the first reading of this passage is like a perfect storm. And you think, what? And people have written volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes on all these little facets. But it's not that hard. By God's grace, let's look at this passage this morning and I hope you track with me. Last week we looked at chapter 10 and if you just glance in your Bible you'll see there that the order was given for John to eat the little scroll that was in that mighty angel's hand. Remember the scene? The mighty angel standing with his feet in the sea and on the earth and in his hand was that little scroll and the voice comes from heaven, eat that scroll and when you eat it it will be sweet to your taste but it will turn bitter in your stomach. And now we come to chapter 11, which is the prophecy that was to be given to John that he would then prophesy to the earth based on that eating of the scroll. Remember, the eating of the scroll was the internalizing of the message of God and now he had to exhale it. He had to prophesy what God was saying through that word. And so he would speak about the sweet gospel of salvation And it is sweet to speak to people that there is hope to be found in Jesus Christ. And he'd also speak of the bitter experiences which the true church 
had to endure when they preached this gospel message because the world would react. But that's not all. There's also bitterness in the judgment that was due to come on people who would not turn from their sin. And any preacher of the gospel always finds that hard, but we must preach it because it's part of the message. Otherwise, if we don't, we are preaching a half message. And a half message is only a half truth. And so, let's look at what this message is that the Apostle, that, um, the Apostle John brings. Now, really important in the introduction too, we need to know what symbolism is. And if you've been tracking through Revelation, symbolism is really, really important in this passage today. So we have a measuring reed, and I've brought you one here. It's not the literal one, by the way. It's another one that I bought. It speaks about two witnesses. It speaks about lampstands, olive trees, the beast. If you try and use these figures literally, you're going to run into interpretive issues. And you're going to have to do some amazing gymnastics to make all these things tie up. So symbolism is really important as we understand this apocalyptic writing. That's the genre we're in in this book. So let's look at what the Lord says through the Apostle John. Firstly, we see there in verse 1 that John says, I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure something else. So what's this all about? Well, he was given the measuring rod because he had to measure with it. What did he have to measure? He had to measure the temple of God. Three things. The temple of God, the altar where people came and prayed, the saints would come and offer their prayers before the Lord. And he had to measure those who worship there. In other words, he had to measure true worshippers of God. But he had to leave out, or literally in the original, he had to reject the outer court of the foreigners, the nations, the Gentiles. We'll come to that. So just hold your horses. So what is measuring all about? You see, measuring is found all over the Bible. Revelation chapter 21 verse 15, we see that God through his son, will measure with a golden measuring stick, a a golden rod. And if you want to study these things, I'll put all these references for you because you will need to go and do some extra work. We can only do so much this morning. But it's actually a direct reference to who in the Bible. Come on, remember it's interactive sermons now. Who is he speaking about when he's speaking about measuring? Old Testament, prophets, Ezekiel, it's a direct reference to the vision that Ezekiel saw in chapter 40 and 42 of the book of Ezekiel. Specifically Ezekiel 42 verse 20, and I'm not going to read that now, but measuring is in scripture and it stands for either destruction or preservation. So when people are measured, it is for destruction or preservation. You need to remember that. That is essential to remember what we're going to do today and to know how to handle it. Second Samuel chapter 8 verse 2, and you can please turn there if you would with me. Second Samuel chapter 8 verse 2 describes this measuring a little bit. Talking about David and his defeats of his enemies. And David defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. So there we have measuring and a line and it's for death or to be spared. Now there's the principle that gets picked up in the rest of Scripture. And so when the Apostle John is told to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there, it is either for destruction or preservation of those things measured. He had to measure the temple, the place where people would come and worship the Lord. And there's more to it than that. Remember I said symbolism. That's based way back in Exodus. Remember all those measurements God gave the people? They had to be specific cubits and cubits and cubits. 
Well, it was to reflect a God who is holy. You don't just come before Him, but when you come and worship before Him in the place set aside for Him, you are to remember that He is holy. And so now the temple is measured to see if they've kept it holy. It's a place belonging to God. And the altar is measured, the place where the saints come and bring their prayers before God. And God hears those prayers while He measures them. Not by the amount of words, but by the heart of the worshipper. And then He he measures with this rod worshippers who come to the temple. And they are measured in, in the sense that they are set apart as holy or belonging to God. And they are set apart from that which is profane, that which is unholy. Why? So that, and here's the principle, when they are measured and found to be holy, that they are protected or preserved unto the Lord. Do you get that? The Apostle John is to measure worshippers and the prayers of those who come and the place that they come and worship at. To find if it is holy unto the Lord, so that the Lord will preserve them forever. So it's a form of protection, this measuring. So that's the one side. The Lord will protect those who He measures and He finds in Him. But at the same time, the verse carries on. What does it say? Verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city. And the text carries on. So in a way, by being not measured, they are measured. Because they are found wanting. And the literal translation is they are to be rejected. Because they are found not to be in God. They fall short of the glory of God. They fall short in their worship of God. Yet to leave out specifically that area outside the physical temple where the nations and unbelievers would come. Those who were rubber necking for the day in Jerusalem to come and see what was happening here. Travellers who had come from afar who weren't necessarily true believers but they were going along because that's what people did. They went to worship at the temple. And also those who came like the Pharisees that Jesus spoke about who came and they worshipped And even though they were inside the temple, they were actually outside. Because their hearts were outside God. And Jesus makes constant reference to this to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders. He measures them and he finds them short of the glory of God. And so he's speaking here of all those who would reject true worship of God. And they would, and now it's a prophecy, they would tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. For 1,260 days, if you look a little bit further in verse 8. And for a time, and times, and half a time, if you look elsewhere in Revelation. It's all describing the same period. What is this period that they would tread on the holy city? That they would tread God's people underfoot? It is the period of the gospel age. The period from Christ's ascension till just before His return. And Jesus explains this, and that's why we can confidently say this about this number of days. Luke chapter 21, verse 24, if you want to turn there with me. Have a look at what, look at what Luke says and what Jesus says in this passage in Luke. Luke chapter 21, verse 24. Jesus is verifying what the Apostle John says in this prophecy. Verse 24, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem, here it is, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When is the time of the Gentiles? When is the time of unbelievers? The Gospel Age. It will end when Jesus returns. And note the words used here by Jesus. He speaks about nations and Gentiles. It's the same words that we find in Revelation. Nations. Gentiles. And by Gentiles, 
It's not those who are non-Jews. It is those who do not believe. That's what's used here. And so it's a direct prophecy of what would come to Jerusalem. In the immediate future, the holy city and the temple would be desecrated by the Romans. It would be destroyed in AD 66 and 70. Historical fact. But the prophet was also speaking about further into the history. Verse 8, he speaks about the great city, also called Sodom or Egypt. Now, why? He's speaking about Jerusalem here. And he's speaking about those who do not believe in the city. It becomes the center for unbelievers for a period of time. It becomes like Sodom. We know the history of Sodom. They rejected God, they turned their backs on Him and God brought His judgment on the city. It becomes like Egypt. Those who turned their backs on what God was saying and so He had to deliver His people and destroy the leaders and the people of that nation. It's a place where it says Scripture in this text where the Lord was crucified. So we know it's speaking about Jerusalem. Don't get confused with Babylon. That comes later and that's speaking about Rome and the Roman system and the hub of unbelief where the beast also comes from. I don't want to confuse you now. Maybe I have. But he's speaking about the history, not just in the near, the near future, but also later in the history of Jerusalem when opposition to the heavenly city would come from the earthly city. Those who are involved in that system of evil. We call today this world. That's what it's speaking about here. They were measured by God in this prophecy and found to be short. And so what does God do about that? He sends out, if we look at verses 3 to 10, He sends out two witnesses. Now, people have made this bigger than what it is. They become like superheroes. And I've seen pictures of that on Google, alright? These superheroes called the two witnesses. It's like giant men. And they stand there, superhuman, and they breathe out fire. Earthquakes, rain, hail, at their word. People have made it bigger than what it is, because if you read it in the context of the rest of Scripture, all God does is, this world that is evil needs to hear the word. So what does He do? He sends His witnesses into the world. Why two witnesses? It's actually fairly simple. You see, it's based on the Old Testament law, and if you know your Old Testament law, you won't think of superheroes. And the Old Testament law spoke about a minimum of two witnesses that was required for just judgment to be settled or to be spoken out. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 35 and Deuteronomy chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 19 if people would bother to look there. All it said was that if judgment is to be executed then there need to be two witnesses before the Lord and then that judgment can be spoke and delivered. That's it. And so what does God do? He sends his two witnesses out. They could have been three or four. But he sends his two witnesses out into the world and they are going to bring his news, his good news of the gospel, but it also includes judgment on those who will not listen. And so they need to be two witnesses or more. Not that hard. No superheroes. I'm sorry. You see, there's some literalist views Literalist views who see these two witnesses as two powerful evangelists. Moses, Elijah. No, it's not going to be them. But it's, the witness of the church is going to be like the witness of Moses and Elijah. And there could be powerful signs which accompany these. And we'll come to that now. But these literalists say that they are literally Moses and Elijah resurrected. And one day they'll have a major impact in world history because they're going to reappear. Jewish tradition holds to this point of view today. Because they believe that when these two prophets reappear, these evangelists will lead to the physical restoration of Israel, to the physical restoration of the temple, and to the physical restoration of Jerusalem. And so you might have heard this point of view all over. But 
the majority view is that these two witnesses are not individuals, but that they represent the church of Jesus Christ, believers in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile, in its capacity as a faithful prophetic witness to Christ's message of mercy and judgment. I'll repeat that. These two witnesses are not individuals, but they represent the church, whether Jew or Gentile, in its capacity as a faithful prophetic witness to Christ's message of mercy and judgment. Alright? And when will this all happen? During the last days. During the period between Christ's ascension and His return. And the reasons for this view are the following. And I'll put them to you so that you possibly could be convinced in your minds. Why do we say what we say in this way? Is it just because, well, we don't agree with those ones. We like to believe this. No. Scripture says the following. Joel. Now, if you can find the book of Joel, find it. And let's go and look at some chapters there. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. I've got a mark, so it's going to be quick for me. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32 speaks about this Old Testament prophecy of witnesses. And it speaks about what will happen when these witnesses speak. Joel chapter 2. Remember the church, in the church age, speaking the gospel message. We're in the book of Joel in the Old Testament. Verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. Now that's not all. So that's the Old Testament. Then the Apostle Peter picks up on that in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, and he explains what is meant in that passage. And so we must look at it, because his explanation is part of God's Word breathed out to us that's been incorporated in this Bible. And so Acts chapter 2, verse 17 to 21, what does that say? Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Uh, sorry, 2 verse 17 to 21. This is what the Apostle Peter says, and he quotes this passage. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my, my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on male servants and female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So we know where that comes from now, the book of Joel. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and he carries on. And then he says, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with almighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to his definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. In other words, he's saying, all these things have now come to pass. And then what happens? What, what had happened just before to the, to the apostles and to the disciples? The Spirit had descended on the day of Pentecost. And so they had seen visions. And these things had come true. And so Old Testament prophecy is spoken about here when the church is to be the witness. There's another passage, Revelation um, chapter, uh, verse 3 to 4. It actually interprets what is being said here. Look at that passage we're looking at. Chapter 11, verse 3 to 4. It explains what has just come before. Verse 3, I will grant authority to, to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Verse 4, these are, what does that mean? The ones we've just talked about. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, that doesn't really help me. Well, actually we've come across these visions before. Where? Early on, chapter 3 and 4, describing the churches. The letters written to the churches they were described as lampstands with the Lord standing amongst them and His Spirit was included in that picture there. His Spirit among the churches 
going out into the world with Jesus among them. All right. So there's the lampstands. And then the olive trees, where does that come from? Exodus chapter 27. The people had to bring the purest of olive oils. They had to bring it to the temple. It had to be put next to these lampstands because it had to symbolize God through His Spirit. Yes, Old Testament was empowering the witness. God was among them. The olive tree, the olive oil had to be there. God's Word going out through His Spirit to His people. Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And then in Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 to 13, we see the golden lampstands, as I've said, talking about the seven churches of John's day, going out into all the earth and Christ standing among them. So we're talking about witnessing here, the church as God's witness. And now he outlines the function of this witnessing church. Because their lot will be a hard one, but it will be an eventual triumphant one. They have to take out the message into the world for a limited time. Look at what the text says. These are the, they are to take the word out, the witnesses. They will prophesy for a specific time, 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. There's a limited time. And what's the content of their message to be? Revelation 19 verse 10 says what it should be. And I quote, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is the testimony of Jesus? It's the gospel message. As it goes out into the world. That is to be the spirit of prophecy that they are to take out. And they are to be clothed in sackcloth. They are to preach not just the good news, but they are to preach repentance and they are to do so in humility before the world. Otherwise the world will not believe them. And so all that prophecy is here is an utterance of the truth of God. Alright, you are still tracking with me? It's quite a lot you have got through there. So the, the, the testimony that these witnesses will take out, the church is to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prophecy of Jesus Christ. The full gospel of Jesus Christ. Mercy and judgment. And that is why we come to the next section now, verse 5, where it speaks about fire. This is where it gets exciting. You see, this fire is linked to a prophet again in the Old Testament. This is where I test you once more. Who is this fire referring to? What was the great prophet to do with fire? Yes? Elijah, yes, but there was another one. He constantly spoke about fire. Jeremiah, big J, Jeremiah. He spoke about fire. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 14. Listen to these words now. I am making my words in your mouth fire, says the Lord. And this people would, and it will consume them. God was saying, when you take my words out into this world, I, am, I make my words fire. And the people are wood. Do you see the connection? And so, when this passage speaks about there will be fire, yes, it's speaking about Elijah, and there's a reference immediately in people's minds, because who was this written to? It was written to, firstly, a Jewish hearing. The churches of that day, of John's day. And they would immediately associate Elijah with fire. And they would associate Moses and control over the natural elements, bringing rain and hail. And if you look at that verse that we've looked at, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord, and if anyone should harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. And they've got the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall all their days while they're prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. How's your witnessing going? You turn into water, into any water into blood lately? Call down any hail on your neighbours? No? What's wrong? God's describing the church and the witness. So how come we don't see these things? Well, you see, we really need to understand what God is saying here. He's saying, if you take out my true message into the world, what does my message contain? My message contains mercy. 
But my message also contains judgment. And if people will not hear, then my judgment rests on them. Not you. It's His judgment which rests. And so it is through this message that judgment falls on people. Not us. We are just the messengers. The message is to go out. And if we are God's true emissaries into this world, if we take out an accurate message of what He says, then it is as as if we are calling down fire and hail and water turning into blood on people if they will not hear. Because it is God doing it. You see, it's God's own message we have to take out. Whenever the church is engaged in the official ministry of the Word and is true to the Word, its its judgments are God's judgments. Do you get that? If we are taking out the Gospel as we should, it should hit people as it should. But the problem is we take out half Gospels because we are afraid of people. We don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't want to tell them about hell and judgment. God says, take out my full message. You are my witnesses on this earth. Take out my, my message as a true witness of God. John chapter 20 verse 12 to 23. John chapter 20 verse 12 to 23. Listen to what it says. Just find my place. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even am I sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now look at this. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Does that mean we forgive sins? Does this mean we withhold forgiveness? Really, as humans? No. It is the message we take out that will either bring forgiveness or God's judgment on people. But we have to take it out. Let God's message do its work. But be a faithful witness of that message. And we have to take it out with sackcloth. What does that mean? You see, if we go out all bold and cocky, you know, if you guys don't come to the Lord, you're going to burn in hell. Turn or burn. The world's not going to listen to that. They're going to think we're weirdos. Who wants to listen to them anyway? But if we come in humility, if we come with tears on our faces, if they see that we really care that they are lost for all eternity, they will listen because God will use that message because that's how the message was given. It was given so it will go out with boldness but with humility because but for the grace of God I would be among those people. If we take out the message with that attitude of heart, the world will listen to what we are saying and God will be glorified. And so we see that there's a limit to their power too. You see, they don't carry on and on and on giving this testimony, but there comes a time, says our text, and you can look at verses 7 to 10, when they finish their message and then what happens? And I'm afraid this isn't good news. They're killed by the beast. And all this is saying is that for a time God has given that testimony will go out into the world but then there will come a time when his mercy ends and the beast comes and kills the church God says this and so what is it speaking about it's speaking about Daniel's prophecy and I wasn't going to ask you and put you on the spot but Daniel's prophecy he saw a beast too rising up and it killed. Daniel chapter 7 verses 21 to 22. Listen to the words from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 verse 21 to 22. Now look carefully at these words. And I looked and this horn which was on the beast made war with the saints 
and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. There is going to come a time and I don't know if it's already started but when I look around at world statistics on Christian deaths as martyrs, there will come a time when the testimony of the church will end. And when the activity of the beast will definitely increase. And on a day, there is going to become a period where the church and many, 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 many believers will be killed for their faith and only a remnant will remain. But are they lost forever? Their bodies might be killed, but they are with the Lord. We know those truths. And so, there will come a time when that Limited time of the gospel ends when the beast will rise and make his presence known much more. And very quickly, and we'll come to this later again, and I'm just going to run through the characteristics of this beast. Bullet points. This beast will come from the bottomless pit, from the world of darkness, sin and death. In in scripture, he's often referred to as coming from the bottomless pit. We'll get to that stuff later. He will have great power. And it will be sanctioned by Satan. And his power will be confirmed by the kings of the earth. His power, he will receive claim and receive worship from unsaved people on earth. And if you're an unsaved person today, you will worship him too, and you are. And this beast is active through the end times, the gospel age. And he'll become openly and publicly antagonistic towards believers, chapter 12 of Revelation. And the closer we get to Christ's return, the more his action will be noticed. And then it will culminate in the final battle. And here's a spoiler alert, so if you don't want to hear, close your ears now. It will culminate in the last battle, when the beast and Satan will fight against God's anointed ones, the saints who are on earth. But, here's a spoiler alert, They won't even lift a finger because God will fight on their behalf at that battle. And he'll fight with fire and brimstone and he'll decisively end Satan's rule and condemn him him to hell forever. We'll get to that, so hold out, alright? But that is the good news. But in the meantime, this beast will come and he will make war on the church and he will bring great great slaughter among them. And that's not all, says verse 9. Until then, unsaved people, and look at the verses, the specific words used here. People, people of all peoples, tribes, tongues and nations. We've come across this phrase before. They will come and they will gloat over these witnesses. They will make fun of them. And when they are killed, they will allow the, they will not allow their bodies to be treated with dignity, but they will treat these bodies of the believers with contempt. They will not allow them to be buried. I even came across that in the attitude towards Billy Graham this week on the radio. One person saying he might be 90-something years old, but his attitude towards women is 700 years old. Contempt for a great man of God. He's not the only one. The Romans wouldn't allow the Jews initially to take the body of Christians anywhere. They had to stay up on those crosses. And so they had to make a special appeal to the Roman governor so that the body of Jesus Christ could be put in the tomb. So that it could be treated with dignity. Because the, the Romans believed, let them stay up on the crosses and rot before people's eyes because it's part of our strategy. Bring these people down. It's the same strategy towards the, the faithful church of Smyrna and Philadelphia in chapter 2 and 3. They were treated with contempt and they were suffering as believers, and so the Apostle writes to encourage them. And this is part of that message he gives to them. Believers will be treated with contempt by unbelievers, especially the closer we come to God's reappearance as His Son. And that's not all. Those on earth will even rejoice over them. They will celebrate. They will send each other gifts because of these witnesses who were such a torment to them such a source of extreme annoyance because of the message they were putting before them. Do you see? And this was proved true. Christian martyrs of the, of the 1500s 
when those people were burning on those crosses and on the stakes, those who sent them to the stakes were sending each other bottles of wine to celebrate. Yes, we got rid of them at last. But little did they know they were burning the seed that would sprout. Because there's a bigger picture here, you see. Russian martyrs, when the Russian government of that era went against Christians and those who were hiding from them and they tried to exterminate them. People like, um, I've forgotten his name now, uh, Brother, Brother Andrew was one of them who smuggled Bibles in, but Richard Wurmbrandt, if you've read any of his works, they put them in prison and, and in camps for many, many years. And they thought, yes, we've got them, we've got rid of them, but little did they know that that seed was germinating. And now, in Russia, the church is mass, the real church of God. In China, same things happened. The underground church is growing in leaps and bounds. I was watching a program on TV the other day and this was just a normal reporter speaking about interviewing people and he wouldn't show their faces because they're part of the underground church. And he was saying to them, what is the state of the underground church? And they were saying, we are millions. Because the world has tried to get rid of them. You see, the church expands under persecution. And so with Christians in Syria, Christians in Damascus, Christians in North Korea, the church is expanding because of God's strategy. What about the church in New Zealand and Australia? We've got it real easy. But I'm no prophet or son of a prophet that I know of. But I believe we are going to go through harder times still. God's word says the church will suffer. It will come upon us. Are you ready? Are you ready to be persecuted for being a fundamentalist? I hear that already today. The good news is, and this, we'll go faster through this, there's good news. There's a resurrection. This witness, these witnesses don't stay lying there in the streets forever. After three and a half days, which speaks about God's perfect timing, and no longer... The breath of life from God came into them. I look forward to that day, one day when I'm dead. You know, I can look forward to something when I'm dead already. One day when the Lord calls me, if I'm dead before He comes, the breath of God will enter me again. Exactly like these witnesses. There it is. There's our hope. God breathing life into a body. The Creator God who was there present at the beginning of human history will be there at the human history when human history ends. And they stood on their feet. And what was the result among those who were bringing contempt on them? There was fear among them because this isn't normal. There was fear because they're supposed to be dead but now they're alive again. And there's going to be fear among all those when Jesus Christ reappears and believers who were dead are risen again, there's going to be fear etched on the faces of all who are still in unbelief. Fear. Reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? What were the words of the Roman centurion when he saw the Son of Man dying? What did he say? There was fear in his words. He said, surely this was the Son of God. You see, on that day when Jesus reappears and believers are risen again, the witnesses of Jesus Christ, people are going to say, surely, they were the witnesses of God. Surely, God lives. He is the true God. And what's that going to result in? They will give glory to God. And not the worship of God, it's going to be the glory to God given like Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel where he realized that the God of Daniel was the true God, and he said, surely this is the true God, the God of Daniel, who could interpret my dreams. Even unbelievers will then believe in God. But they will be filled with terror. Why? Because it will be too late for them. And scripture says here, this great voice was heard from heaven, come up here. Lazarus, come out. Come up here. You and I are going to hear the voice of Jesus Christ. It's going to go right through death and penetrate us. And all our molecules and little bits 
that we are composed of, I'm no doctor, are going to come together and we are going to rise because we are listening to the voice of the Creator God. Come up here. Breathe. You will be with me forever. And at that very moment, when this was happening in John's um, prophecy, there was a great earthquake and 7,000 were killed. A tenth of the city. Now it's not literal 7,000. All those God appointed to die at that stage died. Unbelievers. Because God was at work. Now what do we do with this passage? And you would have realized I've tried to condense. This is one of the most complicated passages in Scripture. I've been struggling this week with it. But God has, I hope, helped me with this. You the test and the proof of the pudding. But What do we do with this? Four things, very quickly. Faithful Christians who testify about Jesus and call for repentance will be attacked. If you don't mention God's judgment, they won't bother with you. Are you ready for the attack? Will you be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ? The Church of Christ will come under increasing attack the closer we come to the Lord's second coming. Are you ready for that? God has warned us in His Word. But even though there will be a great slaughter of the church, God will save His remnant on earth and the rest of us will be with Him in glory and we'll be safe for eternity because we've been measured by Him. And that's my second point. Believer in Jesus Christ, you are measured by God and He takes the measure of Christ on your life. And that measure is a full rule in his sight. There's not one little millimeter that comes short because he measures his son who covers your life. And so because that measure is on you, you are protected in him. And there is resurrection hope in Jesus Christ. And I'll put a passage there for you in Corinthians. You can look it up. But be confident in that hope which is to be found in Jesus Christ. You've been measured by God and He will find you up to measure because of Christ. Put your confidence in Him and rest on that. And then thirdly, I want to ask you as believers this morning, in whose power do you witness? Are you giving a full witness of God's message? Grace and judgment. And whose power do you use to witness is it the oil on the lamps that fills your life? Is it the Holy Spirit who fills your life, who gives you the words to say at the very right time, who causes those divine appointments to happen and then the words to come up so that you can speak to a friend or a family member? In whose power do you witness? Are you relying on your own power? Because you will fail. You will come short. Or do you rely on the power that the Holy Spirit works in and through you. You see, if we are relying only on our own power, we will fall short. And the evidence of whether we depend on the power from the Holy Spirit will come when testing comes against us. The degree of our dependence will then be revealed. We'll fall or we'll stand. What's your prayer life like? Do you show dependence on the Holy Spirit? Do you allow Him into your life daily to work in and through you? In whose power do you witness? And then lastly, I want to speak to any here that are still not believers and there will be some amongst us. If you still haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, then my friend, you are an enemy. Not just of the church of believers, but of the Lord of the church. More importantly, the one who stands among his lampstands. On that day when Christ reappears, you will give God glory. You will acknowledge that he is God. And you will acknowledge that he is the only true God. But my appeal to you this morning still is, and I repeat this nearly every Sunday from this pulpit if you are here, come to Jesus Christ. And find mercy instead of the judgment that otherwise hangs over your life. Find mercy in Christ and live. Joel chapter 2. 
speaks to you this morning. These words, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mournings, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Here it is. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is gracious. He will forgive. He is merciful. He will show you mercy where there should be no mercy. He is slow to anger. He is abounding, overflowing with steadfast love. Return to your Creator and bow your knee to Him and live. I close with a sentence. To the church, corporate, that's you, if you're a believer, what does the Apostle John say to us this morning? He says, the path to victory lies through suffering which will accomplish God's purposes. What is the chief purpose of man? To glorify God. Let's pray. Lord, this has been a complicated passage to get through, but Lord, thank you that you are merciful and that you can help us understand as we sang right before this service, this sermon. Lord, help us to understand your word. And if there are still things we do not understand this morning, Lord, may your spirit teach us. He's the perfect teacher. May he show us that as believers, we are to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ and we are to speak of the message of good news, but also of what awaits those who reject that good news. May we be faithful witnesses of our Saviour. May you use us mightily in our families. May you use us mightily among our friends and our colleagues. May you use us mightily as we speak to our children and testify to even them that Jesus can save them at a young age if they will only come to Him and put their faith in Him. Use us, we pray, so that you will be glorified. And Lord, thank you for that good news that when you measure us, with your measuring stick of your word and your spirit, you see your Son over our lives. And we come up as a full measure before you because Jesus and his blood covers our lives. Thank you for the hope to be found in Jesus Christ. Lord, our prayer is this week that you will now use us with that confidence in Christ, knowing that you look after us and protect us, Lord, use us in this week to be faithful witnesses to you and may this church through its people go into Whanganui and may they speak about Jesus Christ and may people turn to you and be saved, we pray. Amen.